Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello and welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast right here at the beginning of 2021. Thank you so much for joining us. Now today I'm going to be chatting to James Nottingham and he is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, an award granted for making outstanding achievements to social progress and development and is included in the Future 500, a definitive list of the UK's most forward-thinking and creative innovators. He's best known for creating the Learning Pit, a world-renowned model for enhancing curiosity, determination and strategy. He has also been a teacher and leader in schools across the 3 to 19 age range. In 2006, he created the company Challenging Learning, employing 26 staff in six countries, and he is the author of 10 books for teachers, leaders and parents. Now, just before this wonderful conversation with James, here's a quick thank you to our sponsor. I'd like to thank the National Association for Primary Education for their continued support and sponsorship of the Education on Fire podcast. In March, they have a brand new conference which is online called Towards the Balanced and Broadly Based Curriculum. Now, the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on children's education may be perceived as a justification for narrowing the curriculum at the expense of the arts and the humanities. But this conference will explore the case for preserving young children's entitlement to as rich and diverse a curriculum as possible. Dr. Yude's keynote lecture will set the scene, highlighting some key issues and considering some lessons to be learnt from the period of lockdown. The subsequent presentations will focus on classroom practice, providing a spotlight on innovations which have been implemented in school and offering guidance for the future. Now, to find out more about this conference, please go to nape.org.uk forward slash conference. That's nape.org.uk forward slash conference. Hi, James. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. Let's talk a little bit about exactly what challenging learning is for you, both in terms of an organisation and and your concept of what that means. Uh, It is a company that I set up uh, some years ago uh, to support schools and preschools in developing um, approaches to learning that uh, can uh, improve the way in which students engage, the way in which they are able to offer reasons, able to be more creative. Um, uh, My life started with philosophy for children and um, Channel 4 made a a short film of me using philosophy for children in the late 90s when I was a teacher. And lots and lots of schools got interested in, in that approach and invited me to work with them one thing led to another, led to another. And um, then there was quite a lot of European funding, seems somewhat ironic to mention that these days, but there was quite a lot of <laughs> uh, European funding around at the time and a group of schools that were struggling. They they got a, quite a lot of money together and asked me if I would set up a project to help improve achievement and aspirations and um, within 18 months we'd been so successful that the uh, funders said to us um, we've got 1.6 million pounds of underspend would you like to spend it and you can imagine how quickly I answered that question absolutely (laughs) I rolled it out right across the northeast of England and I also said to the funders look I can share this 
outside of the northeast and we can make a bit of money to bring back into the coffers and and we can expand this so it becomes a uh, right across the uk and indeed beyond these shores and uh, they said we would love you to do that but unfortunately uh, the funding prohibits that because of the anti-competition rules and and the keeping a um, shall we say a level playing field in the private sector and so i was determined to do something about that and so in 2006 um, I moved into that private sector and set up a company to do exactly that, to share these ideas across uh, borders. And um, we're still going strong since then. We've got six companies in six countries. And we work with preschools, schools, colleges, universities in many different countries. And tell us a little bit about that philosophy and, and the way that it works, because it does seem to me now, in my experience, the first point of call sometimes, especially if they want to improve standards or or results, is to kind of keep hammering the same nail and work harder and do the same things. Um, and I've always been of the opinion, even if we just go into that sort of Ofsted idea, is that if you're doing great teaching and you're inspiring learning, then the rest of it will take care of itself. So how does that work for you? How did you sort of get that message through and, and sort of the practicalities of what people would actually understand and learn as being part of it? Mm. Well, in the way in which you've asked that question, Mark, I feel as if I'm I'm preaching to the choir here. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to need to persuade you of anything, but um, very much um, our focus is on learning, on learning outcomes rather than on exams. And of course, we expect the exam results to increase because the learning has improved, because the learning has deepened. Um, what we particularly do is uh, pay attention and spend time on um, the most up-to-date research to find out what really works. And I'm not talking one study here and one study there. I'm looking at the meta-analyses, which, of course, is, as your listeners will know, is where, you, where universities compare sometimes hundreds, sometimes even thousands, but more often than not, dozens and dozens of studies are compared one against the other. And the 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 weaker ones are weeded out, anything that has uh, doesn't have a control group or anything that claims causation when it's a correlation, they're all weeded out. And the particularly strong uh, studies are kept and they're compared one against the other. Then they publish a, a conclusion, a, a, a synthesis of those studies. And what we do is we take those meta-analyses and we say, okay, so what does that tell us? Does it support what's going on in the classroom or does it challenge us in some way? And for us, the classic one, which is why we're called challenging learning, is we find the things that challenge what, uh, uh, shall we say, accepted norms or typical practices in education. And we look at, so what needs to be adjusted somewhat? So, for example, um, feedback, um, every teacher across the world, I would guess, but certainly every teacher I've come across, um, they would say that, oh, yes, feedback very important and we give lots of feedback. And yet the meta-analyses are saying feedback's one of the most variable factors and some feedback can make a huge difference and much of it makes very little difference at all because the important thing is not actually the giving 
of the feedback. It's how it's received and perhaps even more importantly, how it's used. And when you look at, shall we say, common practice in schools, much of the feedback, certainly the written sort of marking and assessment feedback that we do that takes us a lot of time, that tends to be done after a student has finished their, their <laughs> task, after they finish the work. And it and I get why we're doing that in for assessed coursework, but I don't understand why we do it at other times because it limits the opportunity for students to actually do something about it. So all we need to do is adjust the timing and when it is ongoing feedback teacher to student feedback then let's give it before they finish and i know teachers are thinking well of course i do i do that in the classroom and i uh, i'm giving ongoing feedback and i say absolutely what i'm talking about here is your marking don't mark finished work mark work before they finish so that they have the expectation and the opportunity to use those that advice that you've given them in a really good way and if you have to grade then if i were you i would refuse to grade until they can prove to you that they have used the advice that you've given them now some teachers get worried about that and say well that sounds a little like cheating to me and I'm, my response is no I think you're confusing cheating with teaching this is our job our job is to help them to achieve more than they could by themselves to take them into as Vygotsky called it the zone of proximal development help them to achieve things they couldn't do by themselves so that's one example another one is about dialogue and uh, using strategies to uh, increase and improve the dialogue in classrooms uh, gadier um, published a, a meta-analysis that shows that to teachers talk between 70 and 80 percent of every lesson <laughs> that doesn't give <laughs> students an awful lot of time for conversation and yet it's one of the most significant factors if we create the opportunities for students to talk about their learning to think out loud in effect to compare contrast to reason to give examples to find counterexamples together that can have a really really significant effect but of course it's not just any type of dialogue it's a particular type of dialogue which you might call exploratory uh, dialogue and so that's what we do we look for what are the meta analyses telling us we then look to, well, how can we support teachers to adjust? And let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot of good stuff going on. You notice the two examples I've given there. That's not changing the very nature of teaching. It's adjusting timing or adjusting its focus a little bit to have a significant effect. And that's what I love. And that's that's really one of the reasons I you know, started education on fire to begin with was the fact that, you know, we might want to have a magic wand and change the whole education system in one fell swoop. But mm. we know that that's, one, it's not practical and two, mm. it's not going to happen in certainly our children's lifetime. So therefore, mm. how can they have a better education? And I think hearing these stories, conversations and real sort of this is actually happening, you know, in schools around mm. in the UK and around the world, then that's something that, 
you know, as you're listening, you can take to your senior leadership team or you can think about yourself or even just implement the one thing that you've taken away, which I think is incredible. So, I mean, in terms of your working practical experience, it's, I guess it's a question of going into the school and you sort of change that across the board. Mm, yeah, for sure. So um, sometimes it's with one or two individual teachers who um, are really keen to improve their own practice. Sometimes it's a bit more of a top-down model where the the middle leaders or the senior leaders have decided there is something that they want to work on. But nonetheless, um, we only go to schools that we're invited into. We never kick doors down. We only go where we're invited. And what we do is um, we offer guidance. We also demonstrate. So I'll say, look, give me any group of kids and I'll work with them. And um, I'll show you how I think this might work in practice. And you watch what's happening and let's talk about it afterwards. And of course, a lot of teachers find that quite refreshing that they're able to have that opportunity to sit back a little bit and watch it happening. Um, we also do a lot of longer term work with schools. In fact, I would say that's 90% of our work is long term work where we start with a baseline. We go on a learning walk, we interview teachers, we interview pupils, parents and a cross section. We don't in fact, we are very deliberate about that. And we say to the schools, don't give us your so-called best kids. Give us a real mix. Those who love the place and those who barely tolerate the place and everything in between. And the same goes for the parents. And we will find out where you're at. And we find that um, people more often than not are a bit more honest with us because they don't know us. And we are uh, we protect their identity so we only audio record what's been said and then our team uh, transcribe that and remove any reference to any names and so it's a, it's a transcript and it's based on our viewpoints and our learning walk and our analysis and we say this is where we think you are at and these are the things we believe we can help you with um, and we'll look for some very clear markers about what we'll be looking for and it's not just the case of we'll come do it to you or with you. Instead, it's much more about let's work together to create those outcomes that we've decided um, are important. So, for example, something I'm just working on at the moment, um, the learning pit, which is something I created many years ago to encourage people to step out of their learning zone, um, out of their comfort zone, sorry, into their learning zone. Um, a school, a group of schools have asked us to go work with them on the learning pit, but I, I, I'm encouraging them to think, but why? What's the point? I mean, we'd love to work with you, but what's the point? So that you can say that you're good with the learning pit and say, well, we've heard it's a good thing, so we'd like it. Well, here are some uh, possible outcomes you might expect. So by using the learning pit, you will see over time uh, students responding more positively to tasks and ideas that are challenging. Um, you'll see students going beyond their first answers to consider alternatives. They'll, they'll develop a, a sense of uh, more considered reasons, more considered answers rather than relying on snap judgments. Um, you'll see that they will be seeking clarification and checking assumptions. Do you see what I mean? So we're, we're talking about these are the outcomes. And if those are ones that um, are attractive to you and something you think 
will help your students, then happy days, let's work together. But if it's something else, if you say, well, I want to uh, lift uh, an Ofsted or an HMI, HMI grade, or I want to uh, improve their levels from six to, uh, to seven or eight, well, okay, we work on learning, we work on learning outcomes. But notice that if your students are uh, more able to consider alternatives, to give more nuanced, complex answers, to be able to identify uh, secondary as well as primary concepts, then the chances are the grades are going to improve. And we find that again and again and again in, in countries around the world. But our focus is not on the grades. Our focus is on deepening the learning. I, I guess it's really what we're we're wanting all of our pupils to understand and, and to learn because that's what we do more and more and more in our adult life as well mm. um and and in terms of how they understand learning and what they're about because all those things you were talking about before about you know the marking as you go through all of that i can't think of a single project i've ever worked on where i've done it all on my own in a silo then presented it and then was told oh actually that didn't really hit the mark it wasn't really what we were after there's continual dialogue all the way through so that when we get to the point of presenting should that be the end result it's the best we think it can be and that might still would be able to have been improved but it's certainly an ongoing community really of everyone that's working on it and working together bouncing ideas backwards and forwards good ideas bad ideas and an amalgamation of the two so it does seem completely amazing that that wouldn't just be our default position anyway but like you say that often isn't the case Mm, for sure well we were talking before uh, this recording uh, about your your life beyond the microphone so to speak (laughs) and um, um, how you're a percussion uh, musician and you were you you play an awful lot in in orchestras and let's go back to that that feedback example again it you know there's so often where if you think about feedback and we we don't just do feedback but i'm using that as an example because it's quite a it's a relevant one to every single teacher um so very often it's almost as if we go listen to the orchestra play and at the end of the performance we give some feedback and this is saying, well, why why are we doing that? Why don't we listen to the first run through, give some feedback, listen to the second run through, give some written feedback, give people time to think about it, talk about it, maybe over lunchtime, and then come back out and play it as well as you possibly can based on the feedback that you've just received. And it and it is it, that idea that we're looking for is any which way we can in some way improve education, improve learning outcomes, whether that's about relationships, whether it's about um, uh, reasoning, whether it's about creativity, we're all the time looking for that. Another classic one is growth mindset. I do a lot of work with Carol Dweck. In fact, I've been on tour with her many, many, many times. And she's the professor of psychology at Stanford University who, who is most associated with the term growth mindset. I look at the meta-analyses and it's fascinating that the two meta-analyses on growth mindset show it doesn't make a very big difference. So why on earth are schools putting so much effort in? 
And of course, so many naysayers then jump on the bandwagon and say, well, there you go, it didn't make much of a difference, so let's not do it. Or our approach is, well, why does it not make a difference? What's going on? And to better understand that, and is it some minor block that can be removed? And as it turns out, almost all of those studies were based on a one-hour intervention from Stanford University. And in just one hour, you can get approximately three months additional growth. Now, who's going to say no to that? But you don't understand that until you start digging into the meta-analyses. And then you think, well, okay, then three months growth in just one hour. Okay, let's have that. But then also let's think, so how can I embed it in my school or in my my group of schools, my multi-academy trust, for example? What does that look like? And then it's considering what type of culture you've got. And uh, something I found is that if you have a performance-focused culture, and by performance-focused, I'm using it in terms of we are mainly interested in getting top grades, in being better than our neighboring schools, in within class being better than other students within class, be, making uh, my own way into the top group rather than being in a middle group. If that's, those are the, the main preoccupations, not the only, but the main ones, then I would say that's, that's a, a performance focused environment. And to be honest, I would steer clear of growth mindset if I were you, because it is contradictory. It's going to get in your way. It's going to confuse kids because growth mindset says, let's fail and learn from failure. Let's make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. Let's look at progress rather than whether you're better or worse than someone else. So you can see that's a conflicting message with this performance focus. Whereas if you have, if you have much more of a learning focus and a learning focus is where um, we are much more interested in how much progress we're making. We're much more interested in sharing our brilliant ideas and our successes with other schools so that they can learn from it, so that they, their students can benefit, um, that we're not about those teachers are brilliant and these teachers are not, but it's about we're all on this journey and we're all developing and we're all improving. If that's your culture, then I would say that's much more of a learning culture and growth mindset fits hand in glove with that. The only way in which I might say that you can cross the boundaries is if you deliberately want to become more learning focused, then you could use growth mindset as the vehicle to do that. But know that it's going to be a struggle. Know that it's going to be a challenge to, to, to move from one to the other. And so this is, I, I didn't know any of that until I started to dig deeply into the meta-analyses and, and interview and work with and, and talk with Carol Dweck in depth to understand what are the nuances, because we hear a lot of people jumping on the growth mindset bandwagon, or indeed trying to knock the wheels off that bandwagon because they think it's, it's yet another one of those, what's it, the new learning styles, where it's a, it's a hell of a lot more than that. And there's a whole lot more credible research backing up growth mindset. But we have to understand the nuance. And that's what this is about. We're all, we're all trying what, to do what we can. And I mean, right now, as we well know, teachers uh, are probably... Uh, gone through the most challenging time of their careers and perhaps arguably the most challenging era for teaching. It's been extraordinary. Um, but in so-called normal times, we're all trying to do a bit more than purely survive. We're trying to 
grow, grow our students and indeed grow ourselves and our profession. Teachers are interested in learning. We love learning. And this is about supporting each other. It's not saying you're wrong. It's not saying you're right. It's about how can we incrementally improve. Yeah, there are a few things there which strike me. And um, and, and I think also the idea of of taking the not the positive idea of the lockdown in the COVID situation in the fact that everything is supposedly upside down and backwards mm. and all the rest of it, but mm. just kind of, this is life, you know, it mm. might be slightly extraordinary compared to our recent experience or most people's lifetime experience, but stuff happens, you know, people mm. get sick, people's parents um, split up or maybe one dies. I mean, all sorts of things happen to people individually this is just a situation where we're doing it en masse and so mm-hmm. therefore we collectively feel it. But I think understanding and seeing everybody react and actually work in a way that's making the best of the situation they're in is such an incredible opportunity. And I think mm-hmm. that, I guess, is the difference between that sort of learning element. We're doing what we are. We're all learning mm-hmm. on the job, so to speak, but we're actually able to see how this works so that mm-hmm. when I'm in a situation that is stressful or not what I was expecting or not the norm i'm able to think okay i've been here before not in the same situation but there is no norm because tomorrow who knows and and the day after and i think that's a really important learning outcome you know when Mm. maths Mm. english science Mm. aside you know it Mm. it makes a big Mm. difference and 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 the nuance thing i really liked because i hear so much as as a musician and and, you know teaching music within schools I hear that kind of, so we need to bring well-being into the music side of everything because we need to make sure that we're doing well-being. And I just think, just do music because music is a way of just being yourself and expressing yourself and is part of being well Mm. (laughs) in in that scenario. Mm. You don't need to tick a box or tag it or anything else or make sure that you said it to make sure people understand that it's part of the the whole thing just by doing the things which actually make you feel better you know being a musician being able to express yourself to have something which is broad curricula actually supports your well-being and and i think understanding that yes you can still bring the topic in if you want to do that but you don't need to if you understand all those nuances and those elements as a whole it for sure um there's two key things that as you were talking there it made me uh think about one is um if i may for a moment go back to growth mindset um one of the things i found when writing i've written 10 books and one of them was about growth mindset and i called it challenging mindset because i wanted to give that sense of look i'm going to challenge the way in which people think about growth mindset and and how we implement it and so on and as i was doing this research and reading every single one of the studies, every single one um, in those two meta-analyses. So that would be 112 different studies. One thing I found utterly fascinating is that contrary to popular opinion, your mindset isn't necessarily the first thing that you need to get right if you want to get students into a growth mindset. You hear trainers, consultants saying all the time, uh, if you want to get kids into a growth mindset, what are you going to have to do first? Remember when you're on an aeroplane and the oxygen mask come down, which one are you supposed to put on first? And actually, it turns out that's not true. It helps, but it's not true. It's not necessary anyway. The thing that actually students and 
children and the people that we influence, if your colleagues perhaps, what they notice more is your responses to failure. So your own children, Mark, or your students, or your colleagues, or your uh, co-musicians, they will notice very clearly your attitude towards failure. They will know if you respond along the lines of, well, that was a stupid thing to do. I should never have done that. I'm never going to do that again. Because if they see that, if you are influential towards them, that is likely to put them into a fixed mindset. Whereas if your attitude towards failure is, well, that didn't work. Why did it not work? What can I do about it? Let's design our next steps then that's more likely to put them into a growth mindset. And so as parents, one of the best things you can do for your kids is talk to other adults about your responses to failure and make sure your kids are eavesdropping because you know fine well if they eavesdrop they're listening really carefully so don't lecture them just talk with other adults about the failure and what are you doing to overcome that so make sure you talk about failure is a stumbling block it's not a dead end it's working out what to do next so i think that's a part of it i think also um this pandemic that we've found ourselves in it has been a cloud I mean, a really dark rainy stormy cloud and particularly for those on the front line and of course teachers are very much on the front line there um, and it's been extraordinarily testing there is however a silver lining to the cloud and there are uh, for example um it, it's said that we've made between five and ten years worth of progress in using technology you know so maybe it was the kick up the backside perhaps not that we needed and it's not been a desirable difficulty but nonetheless there's a silver lining to it we work with lots of different countries around the world and i found it I'm finding it fascinating that the countries that have had to have a lockdown have had to go into um, online learning or blended learning, sort of bit of both, that it's been extraordinarily challenging for them. But you know what? They've made way more progress than the, school, than the teachers in schools who haven't had to lock down. So Sweden, they, they didn't have a lockdown. They had advice, but they didn't have a lockdown. And, and uh, in fact, we were right across the Nordic world. And, and they, even if they did close down, they, they reopened very, very quickly, much quicker than uh, we did here in the, in the UK. And they haven't shifted in their thinking, albeit uh, Swedes, I mean, they love their online technology. They're extraordinarily creative with um, online technologies, but they haven't shifted the way that British teachers have, the way that um, US teachers have. Um, Australia has been a really interesting mix. You know, so Victoria, the state of Victoria has been locked down, but the other states haven't. And so that's uh, we see that. We do a lot of work. We've got a company in Australia. We see those who have had to lock down and do online learning have made much greater strides in their willingness and their ability to use online learning with students than those who haven't. So I don't want to dismiss for a moment that dark cloud because it's been one hell of a cloud. But I do think there have been um, silver linings to it and perhaps it's going to need the holidays coming up for us to be able to get this term out of our 
skin and then be able to reflect and see with hindsight but the, it hasn't been a hundred percent bad and the other thing i want to just circle back on was you said about your sort of walkthroughs when you're getting the idea of a school and, and people's thoughts and and ideas yeah. of where they are um how close is that in reality that the maybe the head or the senior leadership team think it is compared to what you then find out yeah <laughs> that's a really interesting question we always start with um every viewpoint is a view from a point and that might sound like i'm just being facetious here but i, I there is a there is a purpose behind me saying that but it's a point in time so I'm walking in um, today, late November, for example. Um, and so that's in term one of the school year. And it's a particular time of year. The clocks have changed. It's darker. It might have been lots of wet plays going on. Um, but that's going to be different to walking in in the first week of September, for example, in England, or the the middle week in August in Scotland, for example. You know, we, we're going to see a different point. It's a different point in my thinking. It's a different point in, it may be point in the day. You know, you see things differently on a Friday afternoon than you do on a Monday morning in school. So <laughs> we're very, sure. very, very careful to say this is a view from a point. And from this point, this is the view and view in inverted commas there, because it's, this is what we've heard. This is what we've noticed. This is what we've seen. Um, so we present that. And, you know, it's fascinating, Mark, because so very often the senior leadership team, when we share it with them, they almost always say, well, that's refreshing to see that we're probably a bit further along the line with some things than we thought, but we're nowhere near as far along as we thought we were in other things. And it's, it's, and then they read the transcripts of the interviews and they find that fascinating, like really, really interesting stuff. And of course, student voice makes a massive difference, but so very often when uh, the teachers do it, the kids are thinking, oh yes, what do you want me to say? Whereas mm -hmm. we're outsiders and we come in and we're very clear, look, I don't know, you don't know me, I'm going to audio record and that's it, it's going to be transcribed, but uh, we'll remove all names. And so there's some fascinating ideas. And the key is we're not publishing it in a public report as inspectors do. This is an internal document that we say, this is where we think you are at, with that very strong caveat of it's a view from a point. And then even more importantly, and here's the things that we can do to help you. And sometimes we've said, look, there's not an awful lot we can do to help you here. You know, that? And we've got to be honest about that because we all want to succeed and we all want to spend our time on things that are going to make a, an impact. And so... Yeah, it's, it's all about a conversation, professional conversations. It's fascinating. Um, and that um, struck me. There's, in, re in recent weeks, more and more and more, I've been thinking about what the purpose of school is currently. Mm. Um, and it seems to me that the perception a lot of the time is that children are going to go in, we're going to learn X, Y, and Z, we're going to get the best grades we possibly can, we're going to give them everything they need to then 
leave school mm. get a job go to university and that is the purpose as it seems to be set up um in terms of policy and the way that it's all set and teachers and everyone working in education has to work within that framework albeit with the understanding of the, i think the sorts of things that we're talking about you know you go into um education because you want to help children you want to mm. support the whole learning environment and i think that's where the disconnect comes with teachers wanting to leave and and the workload and all of that which is a slightly sort of different topic um but around that do you think there's a way of having this slightly broader in terms of is what we're talking about more of a parental obligation in terms of getting the idea of learning if if the schools are so stuck in where they are or do you think actually it's just a mind shift change that actually the sort of work that you're doing can sort of change that whole dynamic of what education is even mm. within the structure that we have mm. i think um there's two two or three different ways i i might answer that but let me give you at least one answer and that would be that um there is such an interplay between schools and the public so to speak that um it is not a one-way flow the public at large have a massive role in determining how schools are run um i say that um there's a, a very interesting meta-analysis that i read that termed the the politics of distraction and that politicians um, and I'm not going to say anything about our current politicians, but let's just say at large, politicians at large, generally speaking, will fund the things that they know are going to be popular amongst the general demographics. And the problem with that is that parents typically vote for or want the things that are very tangible. So, for example, parents want to see fewer kids in a classroom. They want to see brand new buildings. They want to um, see uh, the use of technology in schools, because these are the things that we understand. Um, we want to see, we want to take particular note of grades and the length of the school day and the different types of sports and other pastimes that are offered by the school, because we understand these. Um, the problem is that although those are important in many ways, they are not the major influences on learning. The major influences on learning are to do with self-efficacy. Well, how many people on the on, on the street know what self-efficacy is or collective teacher efficacy or quality and timing of feedback or using exploratory rather than cumulative or disputational talk? I mean, how many parents know what on earth that all means? That just sounds like um, edu-speak there. Um, but those are the things that actually influence student learning so much more. But the problem is politicians make decisions to keep the demographic, the, the, the people at large happy and the people at large spot the, the um, very concrete, tangible things rather than the somewhat 
more abstract things. And so, um, I mean, I have a very big problem with the idea that uh, education is so politically linked. Every time there's a new political party come into power in whichever country, there's a shift in educational direction. We'll see this early next year in the US. There'll be a significant, maybe even seismic shift because they're moving from Republican to Democrat. There's going to be the same here in England from Labour to Conservative. There was a significant shift and it, it's all linked to party politics and who, who, what are people going to vote for rather than based on evidence of impact. So that's, that's one um, way to think about it. And I think the other thing about what's the purpose of school, and that was your first part of your question, I would say, of course, there are many things uh, in the Scandinavian countries, they will say it's to learn how to be a citizen, a good citizen. In the US, often and not all areas of the US, but often number one will be learn how to work hard and learn how to show respect. I mean, it's it's fascinating the differences. Um, I would love to add that um, a purpose of school ought to be learning how to learn rather than learning what to learn. And of course, there's still going to be the what. But I do think we ought to have much more of an emphasis on learning how to learn. So instead of me teaching, I don't know, about the Viking invasion of Britain, I'm going to teach my students how to find out about and how to learn. Now, a lot of teachers will be thinking, well, of course, that's what we do. But make it more explicit, make it much clearer in our learning intentions, make it much clearer in our intentions as we talk with parents, that I am teaching your children to learn how to ask questions about uh, historical topics or geographical topics or uh, teaching them how to think about numbers rather than just in inverted commas to use numbers but to think about how to learn numbers you see uh, you know every single one of us have had to learn how to pivot in the last few months onto online learning or into online meetings or into working or delivering in a different way, uh, shopping in a different way, um, communicating and, um, and just socializing in a different way. We've had to learn how to do that. And what I think school ought to be about, in addition to learning to be numerate and literate and so on and so forth, is learn how to learn. I really love that. And I think that as a starting point would give us the sort of education that we would, we'd all love. And I think that's why I talk more and more recently about the idea of personalized learning, mm. because I think what we find at the moment is there might be a school that embraces that, in which case, as a parent, you send them into school and go, hallelujah, thank you, I'm in the, <laughs> you know, this is what I want to be happening. But there would be some that aren't. There would be some schools where it is very kind of sort of test orientated, but at home there's a supportive understanding and a dialogue which gives any child the uh, the idea that, you know, there's there's two things going on here and I can do the two together. And I think that idea of personalized learning as children grow to be able to say okay so what is it that we're trying to learn what do we need you know i need advice from this mentor which might be a teacher but it might be outside of the school mm -hmm. you know i need to learn this particular thing that i'm interested in which i'm not getting at school mm -hmm. but i can find it online safely mm -hmm. now you know mm -hmm. and we can mm -hmm. learn in different ways and i can actually learn from the best person that i know who happens to be you know mm -hmm. five thousand miles away or whatever and i think that sort of combination 
at the moment, while, like you say, the political systems change education in different countries all the way around, all I can do today for me or for my children is to find out what we think is going to work best and lean into that. And mm. um, and I find that fascinating. And, and I think that way, while we might want the system to be different or we might want it to look a different way or we're not quite sure how that is, when it starts with the personal, then we've got options and then we can see where we want to head. Mm, yeah, for me, personalized learning um, goes back to to use an Americanism. Um, it's teaching 101. And it's, it's, it's that starting point. You know, the very, very, very first rule in teaching is start where your students are at. In other words, personalize it to them. Um, the problem is, of course, we've got 25, 30, sometimes more than 30 kids in one class. And the average range is a seven-year development range in each and every class. Oh, that's extraordinary. You know, now I'm, I've used this statistic there from maths learning, but nonetheless, so on average, you've got kids bang in the middle, but there's some who are working three and a half years beyond that and some who are working three and a half years behind that. And how on earth do you do that? So that's one of the perennial problems and one of the one of the ways we look into it, how do you personalize it? And, um, you know, Mark, if you, you, you're a drummer, I mean, how how are you going to teach 30 kids how to drum when you've got some who are already very good drummers? And others, like me, I've never hit a drum in my life and, and, and I'm worried what's going to happen when I do. You know, so how on earth are you going to start it off and how do you know where we're at? So um, a really lovely technique is this preview idea. And so you say to us, right, Mark, uh, Mark you're saying to us as students, right, we've got 10 minutes before the bell goes. Next week, we're going to start uh, to learn how to play the drums. So what I want you to do is show me uh what you can already do with drumming on your desk right now you don't need sticks do it with your hands show me what you can do so i get a sense of how many of you have got um a bit of background how many have got a little bit how many of you are intuitively doing it how many of you are thinking oh, i really don't know what to do so go for it and you can do that in a, in any context so next week let's go back to the vikings we're going to begin a brand new topic about the Vikings. So here's what I want you to do between then and now, find out who were the Vikings and what difference did they make to this country? Why on earth would we be studying the Vikings? Those are three questions that I would like you to find out before next time and I'll see you next week. And it gives them that opportunity. And if it's with young children, you, you get the parents involved. Next week in PE, we're going to be throwing and catching. So if at the weekend you can do a bit of throwing and catching, even if that's a piece of paper scrumpled up or uh, some socks shoved in inside of each other and you throw them backwards and forwards. Throw and catch, throw and catch. If you can do that at home, that will give your child an advantage. It also, as a teacher, helps me to understand where are they starting from? Because that, as I say, it's an Americanism to use that term 101, but that's what, what it is. We're, we're starting, teaching 101 is start where your kids are at. Don't start where the curriculum tells you to or the scheme of work tells you to. Start where your students are at and use that as your springboard and so that's back to that learning how to learn as well 
Yeah, and and the personalised learning always kicks in when we deem a student to be excelling or struggling because you suddenly get into that kind of focused, okay, we need to do X to help them. Mm. And um, and I think, like you say, to be able to do that across the board is actually an incredibly important thing. I know we could talk probably for about the next four or five hours, but we probably should start to think about about wrapping that up. I mean, it's it's a fascinating conversation and I think it's such an important one. And, and I'm already thinking about how how I would adapt the things that I do within my lessons um, just from just from the things that we've covered. Um, so tell us exactly where people can go and find out much more um, mm. about the challenging learning and and that sort of best way to start to dip their toe in to be able mm. to sort of, okay, mm. where can this help me? Uh, well, we've got a, a website that is challenginglearning.com. Um, you could, um, you might want to start with the learning pit. That is arguably the thing that I'm best known for, um, that I created uh, almost 20 years ago now. You could find out about that. I've written 10 books. So if you, if you are thinking more as a parent rather than as a teacher, then there's a book called Encouraging Learning that's available. Um, I hear that there's a, this, uh, in fact, I use it now, there's this new collection of independent book uh, shops across the country um, that's well worth checking out. And uh, rather than going to, let's say, the more ubiquitous uh, tax dodging uh, websites, you could go to that one, you know, um, get one of the books. Um, lots of, We've got lots of videos as well. So if you go to youtube or vimeo and you you do a search for challenging learning you you should find our uh, channel so to speak and and watch a video or two on there um or get in touch um if you are a school or a preschool or a college and you 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 want us to do a webinar for you or you want to just touch base and see what we can do to support you then don't hesitate to get in touch we have um, of course english speakers but we've also got uh, norwegian danish swedish uh spanish uh speakers in amongst us um uh, as well so um yeah we're ready and i hope that there's something that you've heard today that uh, is of interest. Maybe, Mark, it's worth finishing with um, our company motto, and that is proving is good, improving is better. And that's what we're aiming for here. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your wisdom. And um, and I hope many, many people just have just opened that door enough to to help the the ripple effect of the hundreds or thousands of children that'll move on from there so thank you very much for being here thanks for listening to the education on fire podcast for more information of each episode and to get in touch go to educationonfire.com education is not the filling of a pail but the lighting of a fire